Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we first talked to Samuel Helfond, author of the new book, Iraq Against the World, Saddam, America, and the Post-Cold War Order, which is published by Oxford University Press. We then turned for a conversation with Khaled Mustafa Madani, uh, author of Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa, about the current situation in Sudan and uh, what's happening between the various military factions there on the ground and prospects for moving forward. Uh, thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Samuel Helfond, the Naval Postgraduate School, author of the new book, Iraq Against the World, Saddam, America, and the Post-Cold War Order, just published by Oxford University Press. Uh, Sam, thanks for coming back onto the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, thanks for blurbing the book. I really, I really appreciate that. Well, it's really interesting. You know, I've been working on uh, related themes for a long time, back by my older book, on uh, Iraq and uh, Arab public opinion. So I was really fascinated to read all of this. Um, before we get into it, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about the book and kind of what the major contribution is and uh, what should readers expect? Okay, yeah. So, um, I mean, the book covers a, uh, what I would call a familiar period. Um, this this period in uh, US or Iraqi relations with the world, uh, you know, from the Gulf War to 2003, which has been written about from all sorts of different angles. Um, but what the book tries to do, uh, it, it's rooted in Iraqi archives, especially of the Ba'ath Party. Um, and, and it tries to give an insight into Iraqi thinking. What were Iraqis thinking from the regime standpoint, I, I should say, uh, and doing um, during this period, which I, I think uh, most people don't know much about. So it gives the Iraqi side. Um, and it also, I think, um, interestingly, uses these Iraqi archives, not just to say what's happening in Iraq, but sort of what's happening in international history more generally, which is a sort of inversion of the way archives are normally used. We use American archives to talk about the Middle East, not Middle Eastern archives to talk about what's happening uh, in the West. And I guess finally, I would say that it's it's a sort of blend of, you know, social, diplomatic, global history. It sort of toggles between these different lenses to try to give a more nuanced understanding of what's what's going on in this period. Yeah, and it's a period uh, that I think most listeners will know. I mean, this is the period when Iraq is under this comprehensive sanctions regime and in confrontation with the United Nations over weapons inspectors. So it's a pretty distinctive time in Iraqi history. Yeah, I think it's, it's and what's interesting about it, I think, which even though most people know it and looking back in hindsight, what's what's sort of remarkable is just the central role that Iraq played in international politics at the time, right? I mean, the Middle East in general is beginning to play this, this role in the 1990s, even prior to 9-11. But Iraq itself is, is really central to debates, uh, not just about, you know, the Middle East, but about world order, right? And the Gulf War and the Bush's new world order. Um, and so it's sort of remarkable that, uh, you know, a country of, of middling size and economy, um, it, it plays this central role in, in global politics for, you know, uh, a few decades. And it really dominated uh, the agenda of the United Nations for over a decade. Uh, I still remember going and talking to all the UN officials there, uh, interviewing for one of my books, and it really was an outsized uh, part of the global agenda in that way. And it does kind of like track a lot of the big changes that we see unfolding. Yeah, that's right. And you have to remember, you know, this is before really the rise of China, right? Russia is in a sort of space in between the Cold War and what we're seeing uh, today. So there weren't these sort of large issues of great power competition uh, on the global agenda. And it allowed, you know, the Middle East in general, but Iraq in particular, uh, to play this, this really outside role. I mean, not just for, I guess you say the UN, but, you know, if you think about the American military, right, I'm at the Naval Postgraduate School, almost every you know, major naval deployment of, of carrier groups, they all went to the Gulf, right, uh, in mm -hmm. the 1990s. That was where the destination was, whether you came from the Atlantic or the Pacific. I mean, it was the center of American political, diplomatic uh, defense policy. 
So before we go any further in talking about the book itself, let's talk a little bit about these archives and, uh, you know, use these for your last book also. And uh, and you've come at it from a, a different direction now. But for readers who aren't really familiar with the with the scope and the nature of the documents that were captured in 2003 and made available to researchers, walk us through a little bit about what your sources were and how you were able to, to kind of mine them for the data for this book. Okay, so um, you know, when we talk about these, when we speak about these archives, there's really two sets of archives that we're speaking about. There's some other subsets, but there's two big sets, right? One are state records uh, taken from state institutions like the military or the presidential office, um, and these were taken by the U.S. military, um, and they were brought to the U.S. They're immense, but uh, they remain behind a firewall on uh, DOD, Defense, Department of Defense computers. And so they they released, they had an office at uh, in DC for a while that was releasing them, but they only got to like 60 or 70,000 pages. I just say only, that's an enormous amount for most Middle Eastern mm -hmm. archives, right? But uh, they only got to, to that that amount um, because they had to translate them to get through the censor and the censor didn't read Arabic. It was a big mess before they ran out of money. And so we have you know access to the 60 or 70,000. They're, they're really pages, they're really interesting. Um, but it's limited. Uh, then we have the the Ba'ath Party, the actual party, right? And this was a party state, so there were sort of parallel party offices for most of the state institutions. So you can kind of see what's going on uh, uh, in the state through the lens of uh, of the party. Um, and these were taken by Iraqi dissidents, uh, but with the knowledge and tacit approval and, and assistance of, of, of the DOD. But because it was taken by these uh, these Iraqi dissidents led by Kanan Makia. Uh, they weren't put into U.S. government systems. They were brought first. They were tried to they tried to keep them in Iraq. That didn't work. They brought these documents out of Iraq. Uh, they were housed at Hoover for for a long time, uh, where they were made digital copies. Uh, and then eventually the archives went back. All I should say, all the archives, whether the state archives or the the Hoover the Bath Party ones, are all back in Iraq somewhere. No one quite knows where they are in Iraq, but they're there. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have the digital. Uh, remains of these 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 files, the digital copies, uh, and the Bath Party archive is immense. I mean, we're talking somewhere in the range of ten million pages, uh, covering all aspects uh, of life. Um, now they're very difficult to to negotiate and to manage. I get calls from you know frazzled graduate students all the time that are there and say, "What do I do?" Right? Because they're not. You can't take pictures of them. Um, they're, they're not really cataloged in any sort of uh, logical way. Sometimes, you know, they were all spread out uh, under the, in the basement of, of this building and they just kind of pieced them all back together into these binders. So sometimes you have a binder that has half one topic and half another topic. Um, and, you know, when they first got them, they flipped through them, some archivists flipped through them and, and wrote down what they saw. But, you know, they're flipping through a thousand pages mm -hmm. binder and they, they write down a few keywords, uh, which covers... You know, it, it might have a lot of information on those keywords in there or, or it might not, right? Um, and so you have to really just kind of sit there, right? You can't take pictures, you can't photocopy them. So you just have to sit there in, 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 uh, at the Hoover Reading Room for, you know, months and months and months at a time uh, to find things. Now, sometimes you can find, for, for example, for this project, there were a few offices and bureaus within the party that maintain their own binders. And when you can find those binders, uh, it takes a while to find them, but then you have like a kind of treasure trove of material, right? Uh, on my first project, for example, on religion, they didn't have an office. There was no bureau that was responsible for religion. So you just had to get bits and pieces from all sorts of places. And you might read, you know, a thousand pages and 600 of it is great information, or you might read a thousand page binder and you find two pages on 752 that has some reference to something you're interested in. So it's really, uh, it's really a lot of work. Yeah, having having uh, been there myself, I can certainly vouch for that. It, it is a mess. Um, yeah. So, so let, let's start talking about the the, the findings then, and, and the book itself. A lot of the book is focused on Saddam's efforts to, as they say, get out of his box to try and you know win public sympathy globally speaking, and you know to try and figure out a way to undermine support for the for the sanctions and weapons inspections and the like. Walk us through some of the key things that you found in the archives that kind of make sense of what he was trying to do. Okay, so um, yes, th that's right. I mean, Saddam's main concern during this period is, if you know, just a reminder for for anyone, uh, 
the Gulf War, during the Gulf War, or, or to sell the Gulf War, uh, the George H.W. Bush administration had, had sold it as, as part of a new of launching a new world order around these sort of experimental policies in Iraq. They're going to bring everyone together at the UN into this kind of coalition where the Security Council is actually going to be functioning, it's going to be working, they're going to do things by, you know, resolutions and by the rule of law. And there was all this talk of, you know, getting rid of the rule of the jungle and out of the rule of law. It all seems very, you know, idealistic and naive uh, looking back now 30 years later, but, but this was a real discourse that that was that was happening uh and uh the iraqis sort of understood their position as being caught you know uh on the receiving end of this right finding themselves as, as the entity being experimented upon right with sanctions and, and everything else um and they wanted to break up the consensus the consensus that had formed during the gulf crisis around uh you know holding iraq to account um a few things that I think are, are are important to understand is that Saddam himself, although he he sort of looks the role of your kind of military dictator, like a Nasser or a Gaddafi or a Mubarak or or you know Hafez al-Assad, he's not. Uh, he doesn't come up through the military like um, most of these other folks, and uh, he comes up through the party, uh, through the Ba'ath Party, which sees itself and which he sees as a sort of revolutionary bottom-up. Uh, political party like um and so when he looks out at the world yes you know of course he invaded two of his neighbors and he has oil and, and their economics and military hard power play a role but uh he really sees the world through this this sort of bottom-up kind of massive you know politics of the masses uh and he sees his way out of um of this conundrum that he finds himself in the 1990s uh, through influencing the masses, right? Um, and he has party organizations, which I think um, no one quite knew about outside of outside of the regime. Uh, he has the Ba'ath Party, the, the Iraqi branch of the Ba'ath Party, but, you know, uh, Iraqis that we're talking about here, not just Arabs. Uh, they open up branches of this Ba'ath Party in the 1980s uh, in over 60 states uh, around, around the world. Uh, and they're sort of organizing the Iraqi diaspora, but they're also doing a lot of the things that they would do in, inside of Iraq, which is trying to influence the political conditions of, of whatever state that they're they're in. So trying to get stories into the newspaper, you know, courting politicians, uh, creating networks and alliances among people who share, uh, you know, interests that, with Iraq. They don't have to necessarily like Iraq. They might not like Saddam Hussein. That didn't matter to the Iraqis. If they were against sanctions, if they were against wars in Iraq, um, the, the Iraqis, the Ba'athist uh, in those countries, including the United States, there was an Iraqi Ba'ath party in the United States, which I was very interested to, uh, to read their documents, um, would, would find these folks. Uh, they wouldn't always tell them they're Ba'athists. They're often working covertly. They would simply say, hey, I'm an Iraqi concerned about what's going on in my country and you seem to share my, my concerns. Uh, and so they would, they would start working with these people. They'd give them the resources they would need. They would give them visas back to Iraq if that was what they needed. Uh, and they would also make connections, right? So you might have a sort of right-wing conservative isolationist who has nothing in common with student activists on a campus or an Islamist, a hardline Islamist group somewhere. Uh, but the Iraqis, because they're working through these, these Ba'athist networks, are able to sort of make these connections, right? Bring everybody to the same protest. Um, you know, have people, you know, write their congressmen in, in a sort of campaign, right? This is in the United States, of course, the same thing is happening. Uh, in Europe and in Middle Eastern countries, they can get people on the street, right, in, in places like Cairo and Jordan, which is, you know, a big concern for authoritarian uh, regimes. Uh, and they also can find, you know, lever, you know, levers within hard power institutions, so oil companies, for example, that that stand to benefit from Iraq, uh, and sort of make deals with them to to get them to influence their country, whether it's it's France or Russia or you know Spain or uh, Italy. Even they try in the United States, although they're not quite successful, um, to get these oil companies to sort of try to influence the policies of um, uh, of their states, so that they can break up these sanctions. Right? They make, they give, they create these incentives um, for states to um, to defect right from the from the coalition, uh, and they provide a sort of moral narrative that allows states to do so without looking like they're just simply out for uh, for making money. No, it's a it's a it's a delicate issue there, right? Though because you know there's two separate things going on, and both are true. One is that the sanctions were causing a humanitarian catastrophe inside of Iraq, which many people found morally abhorrent and were acting, you know, to try and stop them for their own reasons. 
And as you show, Saddam and the Ba'ath Party are trying very hard to kind of recruit and mobilize that kind of support. And it's the balance between those is quite interesting to me. Yeah. And it's it's a, um, you know, it's a conundrum for activists everywhere. Right. Uh, and the Iraqis sort of understand this. Right. I mean, the suffering, as you said, is real. Right. It's very real. This is a, a powerful uh, tool that the Iraqis have. It's not that different than, you know, someone today who wants to. Uh, you know, talk about how s sanctions are um, are hurting Iranians, right? Um, yeah, or or they, Syrians or or, or Syrians or whoever it is, right? But at the same time, or Russians, right? Uh, but at the same time, knowing that 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 narrative uh, supports uh, regimes which you might not like, right? Um, and so um, this is a, a conundrum for for activists mm -hmm. uh, everywhere. The Iraqis understand the conundrum, and they understand that you know th they speak about there's a sort of divide between uh in the west at least right where they want to keep the sanctions but they also don't like the results of the sanctions and the iraqis understand that there's a divide and they can use this uh to sort of to, to split apart um mm -hmm. you know political factions and coalitions that have been working together now there's there's of course there's a there's a huge turning point in the middle of all of this which is the oil for food program which really changes kind of the means that saddam has at his disposal to try and uh you know exert this kind of leverage yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, it's always there as a latent force. People understand that Iraq has oil, right? And the Iraqis are making deals, uh, you know, especially with European companies, even before the oil, even before they're allowed to to uh, to sell their oil, uh, because um, they know that they'll make a lot of money. And so the Iraqis, yes, they they have the oil for food. There is an oil for food program at the UN, which allows Iraq to um, sell its oil. Um, in exchange for humanitarian uh, resources, this is a completely corrupt uh, program. We know now, right? Everyone's on the take, including uh, the UN official who was supposed to be uh, monitoring the, you know, uh, the program for for uh, corruption. Uh, what's interesting from from this book's point is, you know, at least in the first stages when the Iraqis are selling their oil. Uh, I say there's two sort of interesting things. One, they're selling the oil at, at a loss, right? It's corrupt, but they're they're not making money because they're selling oil for influence is what they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. They they will give people oil at below market value, uh, in exchange for them attempting to um, you know, push their government in in, in the right direction and in, in a direction that's going to defect from uh, you know, the American sort of led coalition. The other thing that's I'd say is probably more interesting. Yeah, people kind of know all that already. If you read through the Volcker report and all these all these, you know, reports, what's interesting from the Iraqi archives is you can see, you know, how the Iraqis recruited uh, and found these oil companies. Right, you can't just walk into the door of Total right and say, "Hey, I have a deal for you." Right. Um, <laughs> so what you find is that the Iraqis have been building these networks. Um, you know, knowing who to speak to at these oil companies, knowing which politicians, you know, are, are going to cooperate um, with them because they have to do all this sort of below the radar, right? Um, making these deals, which end up being sort of corrupt. I mean, a lot of uh, officials in Europe actually end up going to jail for this, uh, mm -hmm. you know, after 2003, when some of these findings uh, are released. So finding how Iraqis recruited them uh, and then how they in instrumentalize, right, and combine the political narratives that they want, right? Um, and uh, the influence of these oil companies, how they, they integrate this into a sort of strategy um, to a kind of wedging strategy to, right, to break right. up this coalition. Uh, now, one of the things that that, uh, that you do uh, in the book is you break it down in terms of the different arenas and where this stuff is happening. You were just talking about the oil companies. There's, of course, influence campaigns that are going around uh, the Middle East, but also the rest of the developing world. Um, and then, of course, there's the ones targeting, say, France or specific European countries. And so this is this is quite a sophisticated global strategy that you describe. Yeah, it, it's, you know, if anyone thinks that Saddam was just a kind of tin pot dictator backwards, uh, you know, they're they're mistaken. He was he, they had a quite sophisticated operation. They had some they, they did have, you know, some stereotypical bureaucrats who just are, you know, punching their tickets. They also had some uh, there's a woman in particular uh, named Huda Amash, who's, you know, uh, very sharp uh, and has very interesting ideas and, and strategies. It's very you know proactive. Um, they uh, have different 
you know, programs for different parts of the world, right? That they're acting very differently in a place like Egypt or Jordan or Saudi Arabia uh, than they are in the United States, right? Or or in Europe, right? Uh, or in Russia, right? So in, in Russia, they might be speaking about, you know, the lost glory of, 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 of you know, Russian history and look how the Americans are trampling on you and, you know, uh, Russian pride and all that sort of stuff. In the Middle East, they, 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 they really tapped into Islamist narratives, right? About, um, you know, the Americans are, in, are, are trampling over the holy places on the, on the, on the Arabian Peninsula because American troops were stationed there, right? After the Gulf War. Um, and, you know, this is a kind of jihad against the infidels, even though they would never use that language domestically. You know, abroad they 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 use it. Or places like Pakistan, that that that, that narrative gets a lot of traction. Uh, and the United States, you know, they're comparing um, uh, American policies in Iraq to uh, to Vietnam, right? And they're tapping into some of the old. You know, they're trying to rebuild and in some sense successful this old like you know bring the band back from the 60s right <laughs> get the protesters back out on the street with these same ideas right uh and re rekindle some of these uh which works there's actually you know um in the gulf war even right at the beginning mm -hmm. there are you know, we remember it as a sort of a good war you might say right uh it's sort of how it's seen but there was actually quite a significant protest uh and it only passed in congress by by a few votes right so um mm -hmm. you know the iraqis were involved in that and of course you know by the time you get to the end of the decade when they're and many of these protesters, we should say, right, they had their own reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, people protesting the Iraq war in 2003, they weren't just stooges of the Iraqi regime, right? There was good reasons to be out there uh, protesting, right? The Iraqis, what they did is they amplified uh, those voices and they created networks where networks uh, probably wouldn't have existed, uh, which allow something like, you know, in February 2003, you had the largest global protests, you know, uh, in the history uh, of mankind uh, against the Iraq war. And the Iraqis are very involved in sort of, you know, tying together these different groups that are out there on the streets in various capitals. And so, and that's an important distinction, I think, this idea that, you know, you, you, you there's the, there's Saddam's plans on the one hand, and then there's, you know, what's happening. And obviously not every protester is on Saddam's payroll. And the book doesn't say that. Um, and that's and that's important, but it, but it's also you know, it's a really interesting uh, kind of window into how, as you began this podcast, kind of how he understood how politics work, and you know, kind of the ability to catch it to to wedge into these existing issues and narratives. Uh, again, it's quite sophisticated. Yeah, I mean, it's also important to realize this is they had a lot of trial and error, right? Which is another thing. You know, some of the sort of popular understanding of Saddam is that he wouldn't hear any dissent or he wouldn't hear anything that that he didn't like. But that's not really true. They they tried a lot of things and they didn't work. Uh, and you'd get these reports up say, this isn't working. We need to try something else, right? We're failing, right? Um, this is like sort of mid-level bureaucrats or or operate you know operators out there in the field reporting back that hey, this strategy isn't working. We need something else. Uh, and eventually, they they hit on some things that work after a lot of. Uh, trial and error. Uh, and what they find that works is the Iraqis can't create the fundamental sort of conditions of international politics, right? They can't create Russian nationalism. They right. can't create uh, French, you know, dissatisfaction with their place in this American-led order, right? They can't create Islamist movements, but they can sort of take what might be innate or inclinations by, by these states or different groups, right? Uh, and they can work them and push them to take actions that uh, that they might not have taken, right? That they may be inclined to take, but they can turn that inclination into a real action, right? Push them over over the edge. And I, I spend a few places. It's hard to know, right, when they're actually doing this because, mm -hmm. you know, any type of influence operation like this, you know, it's it's really if it's it's a question of what what would have happened in the absence of Iraqi, uh, you know, right. uh, uh, operations, right? W would Russia have taken the same road? Uh, and it's certainly possible. And I spend, I, I narrow in in a few places in Russia and France or with the Muslim Brotherhood where I show like, actually, you know, it's not clear that Russia would have taken this sort of stance against the United States in this particular instance. Uh, and this is how the Iraqis basically shaped shaped it so, so that, and pushed the Russians to take that, uh, that, that position. Um, it's, so, it's, sort of like a, it's sort of like a precursor to the kinds of like, say, the Russian influence operations in the United States and that sort of thing, uh, you know, that's become so ubiquitous in, in, in international affairs. Um, and but the difference here is that, uh, you know, because of your access to those archives, you can actually see 
kind of behind the curtain and what they were actually trying to do in a way that we can't at this point with, say, you know, Russia in 2016 or that sort of thing. Um, so you, we can actually do a little more than inference based on the sources. Yeah, that's, that's right. No, you can definitely see what they're doing, right? Uh, no, you don't know its effects. So, but you can see what they're trying to do. Yeah, you can see what they're trying to do. Right. Uh, and you can see that there's an intentionality there. Right. Um, and you can see how it played out. Right. And who who were the people doing what? Um, you know, the I think the the comparison to Russia in 2016 is very, is good. We don't really kind of we, 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 we sort of know what Russia was doing. Right. And we can sort of look. But we don't have the hard evidence. Right. And the effects are similarly uh, hard to sort of pin down. Right. I mean, we know that they tried to get extra voters out into the street. Right. Uh, and in particular places that they were going to vote for Trump. Uh, and you get, you know, you move 200,000 people in, in somewhere in the Rust Belt and, and now all of a sudden we have President Trump. Right. Uh, but those folks were probably inclined to go vote for President Trump anyway. The question is, how much did Russia push them? You know, and how many of them would have voted without that Russian uh, with without that Russian push? I mean, I think there's you know people who study this seem to say that there's good evidence that they were pushed. Right. And that maybe there would have been a different outcome. Uh, you know, the same thing you can say here, right, that um, the Iraqis are pushing them, which is, you know, it works well um, for Iraqis as long as there's not a war, right? Uh, you know, this sort of strategy um, works fantastic when, you, when you're below the level of, of war. But Saddam is sort of blindsided, uh, I think, in the Gulf War and in 2003, uh, because yeah. this type of strategy does nothing against a sort of determined adversary with an overwhelming, you know, uh, military advantage. But it does tap into, I mean, it's not the major focus of your book, but it does tap into kind of ongoing debates about soft power and these kind of non-material dimensions of, of international relations. Yeah, I think that's right. And I had to spend some time in the intro sort of, and then, then sort of follow through out the book, uh, trying to think about what does it mean to be effective or to be mm -hmm. successful in this type of operate, you know, this type of, you know, influence operation. And what I, I try to do is, is um, there's one level, which I call the operational level, uh, which is simply about creating these networks, right? If you pick up the phone and call somebody that they answer, right? Well, they come out and when they do the things that, that you're asking them to do, come to the protest, get your, get your, your article in the newspaper, get you on TV, whatever it is, right? Get that, that meeting with the congressman, uh, or whoever else, uh, it is. And those you can actually track and sort of measure effectiveness, right? Because there are times when Iraqis are trying that and, and they're failing. And there are other times when they're trying it and they're, they're succeeding, uh, but then there's another level, which you could call like the sort of strategic level, right? Did this actually affect the policy of a place exactly. like France or Russia, right? Um, even if you're successful at that operational level, it's not always clear that that has uh, what, what the what the follow on repercussions are for French policy or Russian policy or American policy or Egyptian policy. Uh, that is a lot more difficult uh, problem. Uh, I don't know that there's been a really great way to sort of uh, measure it, but I try to show just through, through like process tracing, you know, in places where I think there is a, a case to be made that it does uh, affect policies in, in various states. And you mentioned uh, just now uh, uh, newspapers and media and, and TV. And of course, the media is a major battleground for this type of thing. And you've got a lot of uh, details in the book about efforts to place op-eds or to, um, you know, get particular, you know, TV anchors to come and interview Saddam and things like that. There's a very active media strategy. It's not all about the media, but there's a lot of it there. Yeah. I mean, they want to control the narrative, right? Um, this is also an age really where they haven't quite figured out the internet or satellite TV yet. So it was much easier to sort of try to control um, these narratives. Uh, I mean, you know, internet and satellite TV come in at the very end, but if you're, you know, in the early nineties, you know, uh, it's much easier. Uh, and so, yeah, they can control who has access to Iraq, right? What reporters can come to Iraq, right? Um, and, and they vet them. The Baathists will, will find, well, in, in places like the United States or Europe, uh, they will find the reporters that they know are going to, Give the right message uh and they will get them visas to go to iraq and if you're a reporter that's going to be critical um then you're, you're not going to be able to report um on iraq right and same thing you know if you're 
uh, an ambitious reporter, even in the United States and New York or something like that, um, you know, the Iraqis will approach you with a story, right? And, you know, if you approach a, a reporter with a good story, they're probably going to run it. Uh, and so they, they you know, they, they give the details. It's all very curated um, behind the scenes. Uh, and especially in Iraq, it's curated. When someone comes to Iraq, I mean, uh, you know, you can you can follow their 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 agenda, uh, and these supposedly like independent just Iraqis on the street are actually have their lines, and they tell them, you know, mm -hmm. oh, actually, someone just spoke about that. Don't mention it. You know, mention something else. Uh, you know, it's all very curated. So I guess to to finish up, then I guess we say, you know, stepping back and looking at like the big contribution of the book. You know, one thing is that is that there's been a number of quite good books published now using these archives, usually to study, you know, the system of totalitarianism and repression, Lisa Blades, or you know, you did the that great book on uh, on the religious sector, um, and there's been a couple of others that have used the archives. But this is a really uh, a kind of a novel way of exploiting. Um, uh, what's out there. You've seen the whole picture. Where do you see other types of projects that might emerge using these archives that, you know, at, now that we've gone kind of past like the, uh, the um, I don't know, the uh, the obvious? Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, there's still more work to be done, obviously, inside of Iraq on particular issues, right? There's good work being done on Kurds and elsewhere. But where I, I see uh, the most potential uh, is outside of Iraq. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the Iraqis, so I mentioned they have an Iraqi bath party, right, which is under this sort of, um, you know, the, the, the part of the Iraqi bath party, the, the they call it the region, the Iraqi region, regional command, right? Uh, and, and they have all of these these groups from you know all over the world, but there are also different Bath Party branches, like for you know the like the Bath Party of Yemen, right, or the Bath Party of Jordan, right, uh, Bath Party in, in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, and they also have their own offices, and they're sending uh, they're sending reports back to um, what's called the National Command, which is in the bureaucracy is one level above like the Iraqi Bath Party, right? They're they're sort of um, supposed to. Uh, control all the other region, all the other regional commands, all the other, what we call states. Um, and there's a ton of, there's a ton of, uh, of information in, uh, in there. You can really sort of, you know, almost rewrite the history of the Middle East. What does this look like? What does the second half of the 20th century look like through the lens of, you know, an Arab state, um, which we've never been able to do anything like that before. Um, and you can get to all sorts of, you know, cross Gulf sec sectarianism. There's all sorts of the issues that we we deal with um, in sort of Middle Eastern studies that we, we sort of know. Right. Uh, sectarianism, you know, regional relations, um, media. Right. Um, you can really look into all these issues outside of Iraq through mm -hmm. the lens of these these archives. And they're problematic. But American archives are also problematic and British colonial archives are problematic. Um, and, you know, you have to go in there skeptical and you have to be able to read them against the grain and, and do all the things that you do with any other set of archives. Um, but if you do that, I mean, there are all sorts of, you know, ground level stories um, about Sudan, right, for example, uh, or Egypt in there that um, haven't really been exploited. Right. Even in, in my book, I just deal with the Iraqi regional command for the most part. I don't deal with very, very briefly and in a few places deal with what's going on in, in Palestine, for example. I mean, they have enormous amount of information about what they're doing and what, what Palestinians that are connected with, with the Ba'ath Party uh, or other nationalist groups that are aligned with the Ba'ath Party. Yeah, uh, the Lebanese Civil War. Right. I mean, enormous amount of information about what's happening there. So I think really uh, transnational and international issues. Uh, if someone wanted to sort of take those up, um, that would be really interesting. Um, That's fascinating. Uh, we've been speaking to uh, Samuel Helfond about his new book, Iraq Against the World. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're now joined by Khalid Mustafa Medini. He's the author, most recently, of Black Markets and Militants, Informal Networks in the Middle East and Africa, a book that we profiled uh, on the podcast earlier this year. Uh, Professor McGill, uh, Khalid, thank you so much for coming back and joining us again. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
I wish it was under more auspicious circumstances, but of course, uh, we're now in the second week of uh, of this rapidly escalating uh, violence in Khartoum and in Sudan more broadly. This is a country and a topic which you've been studying your entire career. And I was hoping that we you could help us to kind of understand at a, at a deeper level what's really happening in Sudan since the, since the, the uprising and the transition. Um, and maybe a way to start is with the actual violence itself. And a lot of people, you know, you read the media accounts of this, and it seems almost like it's just a personal rivalry between uh, Burhan and Hameti, and they're just like power hungry and attacking each other for no other reason. But your work on the military and on kind of the, the underlying foundations of the power of the military seems to me points in a different direction. Could you, could you walk us through a little bit, you know, kind of how, what is really going on here between these two military forces? Um, well, I, uh, thank you for that question. I think the general uh, narrative or explanation of, of the conflict under, uh, going on right now is, is that it's a power play or competition between these two generals. One of them, of course, is General Abdel Fattah Burhan, who's head of the army, national army, and the other is um, um, General Hemeti or Muhammad um, Hamdan Degalo, known as, uh, known as Hemeti. Um, that is, uh, does not explain a number of things. One of them is the number one, the severity of the violence that is ongoing um, between uh, these two generals. And another one is why all of a sudden after years, literally almost two decades of cooperation and partnership, uh, do, did these two generals uh, all of a sudden have such a stark disagreement leading to this kind of conflict. And so it's very important to really emphasize um, uh, the framework agreement itself that really fell apart leading to that. Um, we should begin, I think, in terms of uh, understanding uh, their own uh, kind of partnership in waging the coup of October 2021. Uh, that becomes important. The differences be between these generals and the structural issues underlying them uh, really begin uh, after that coup on October 2021. Um, unfortunately for General Burhan and the top brass of the military, they were not, despite all their efforts, able to consolidate their military rule over the country. Uh, daily protests continues, and your listeners should uh, remember or should know of, the, of that fact. In that context, of course, after the coup, um, you know, scores of uh, innocent civilians and pro-democracy activists were uh, killed or detained daily. Um, mm -hmm. At that point, the two generals, Hemeti and Burhan, did have a, a, a close a partnership. But all of a sudden, you began to see that or hear from Hemeti himself that he uh, said, number one, that the coup was a big mistake. Um, and number two, that he was uh, a, a proponent of democracy. Uh, that uh, really is the first indication of the deep uh, conflict that was to occur. In the context of uh, what occurred following the coup was, of course, the framework agreement. As a result of the lack of consolidation on the part of Burhan, um, they were both uh, forced to um, negotiate with civilian politicians, in particular the forces uh, of Freedom of Change Central Council, um, around the table under the auspices of the international community, um, around what, uh, what was called the framework agreement. The framework agreement had a number of different contentious issues that help us understand the structural uh, uh, tensions that emerge leading to this conflict. I'm going to highlight three of them that are extremely important. Um, one of them had to do with uh, transitional justice, uh, the issue of accountability. Remember, Hemeti, of course, uh, um, has um, been not so much indicted, but he is and was almost indicted for crimes not only against uh, uh, people in Darfur, but putting down uh, in cooperation with the forces of Burhan, the sit-in in, in uh, June 2019, killing hundreds. So there's that issue. The issue of accountability becomes really important because it was one of the central principles that needed to be negotiated with the framework agreement. The other one had to do with the dismantling uh, of the remnants of uh, of the former regime of Ahmed Bashir, specifically the, the vast economic uh, wealth and institutions and assets uh, of the National Congress Party uh, that was led by Omar Bashir at the time. And the third and very important uh, principle was, of course, the integration. Uh, the integration of the paramilitary militia headed by Hemeti um, that was supposed to be integrated into uh, the national standing um, army, which is uh, really uh, crucial. These three uh, principles uh, were an, or contentious issues, believe it or not, um, were deferred to phase two of the talks. 
the first um, uh, phase was signed in uh, late December of last year of 2022. Um, and uh, these three very important issues, uh, and here is where we begin to see uh, the real failure of this agreement and the beginning of the falling apart of the agreement in this conflict. They were deferred to April uh, 1 and then later to April 6. It was never uh, signed. Uh, crucial to these differences was let's begin with the integration issue. Mm -hmm. uh, that, from the perspective of Burhan, was uh, seen uh, as uh, simply a legal issue. Uh, the paramilitary militias of Hemeti, the Rapid Support Forces, uh, were institutionalized legally uh, as a branch, an assistant branch uh, of uh, the National Army in 2017 by Bashir. From the, uh, Burhan's perspective uh, and his allies at the top brass of the military, the idea was to continue with having command and control over this paramilitary militia. Uh, but uh, from the perspective of Hameti, he wanted to retain his autonomy and more than retain his autonomy, he wanted to change the structural and legal dynamics of this paramilitary force. In other words, in the context of the agreement, Hameti wanted in alliance with the forces of, uh, of freedom of change to be uh, only under the oversight legally and politically um, and practically of a civilian prime minister. Uh, here, of course, you see that from the perspective of Burhan, um, that was going to be a huge problem because he would not be able to consolidate the national army and he would lose command and control authority completely to a parallel military force. In addition, uh, for those uh, listeners not aware, the two very important spoilers here, uh, the Justice and Equality Movement and the Sudan Liberation Army branch uh, led by Jabril and Minawi, uh, tied their own integration into the armed forces forces to the timeline that Hemeti set, which was a long 10 years. Uh, from the perspective of Burhan, who wanted it to only be two years and happen quickly, the danger here would be not only would there be an autonomous militia under um, um, Hemeti's um, authority and this uh, prime, civilian prime minister, but also two other militias that would also be autonomous under the authority of the prime minister. Uh, that calculation gave the opportunity to elements in the armed forces to actually wage this, what we call, internal coup to the institutions. Uh, that uh, Those elements, I would argue, and most Sudanese know, were members or remnants of the National Congress Party, the Islamist. And here we have to understand that division in the army. The top brass uh, that, of course, include Burhan and those appointed by Omar Bashir, what we call the uh, Intelligence and Security Committee. And here there is a division between Islamist and non-Islamist. Uh, uh, and it, this, at this juncture that the Islamists themselves uh, decided that this would be a perfect opportunity to persuade Burhan that there was no other option but to engage in an all-out war here in the capital city to take out the bases uh, of Hemeti. And that becomes a really important aspect. Um, in the context of accountability, uh, and that's important, the other principle, uh, the reason that uh, Hemeti begins to have these tensions and conflicts with, um, uh, with uh, Burhan and the top brass of the armed forces is that he decided to bank uh, and move towards um, his alliance with the forces of freedom of change. Uh, and that had to do with the fact that he was losing support from his benefactors, including the United Arab Emirates because of the end of the war in Yemen. And he decided that if he were not to ally with so-called democracy and the civil society forces as against his former ally, uh, General Burhan, uh, what would occur is that he would be uh, in the transitional period uh, open and vulnerable to accountability for his crimes in Darfur and even his actions in the June 2019 massacre. So that immediately pitched and changed the balance of power. Here, prior to this uh, awful conflict, you had uh, Burhan on one side and the Islamists trying to find as much opportunity as possible uh, to actually uh, get back into power in the military and the bureaucracy. And Hemeti, on the other hand, who decided that in the two-year transitional period, his best bet was actually uh, to avoid accountability, uh, uh, is to ally himself with the civilian politicians and um, um, ingratiate himself to the international community, not only the United States and, let's say, Saudi Arabia, but also to evade uh, the accountability issues that the World Bank and IMF had actually insisted upon. Uh, and that becomes really an uh, important aspect. So these two uh, elements are really important. With respect to the important aspect of dismantling the vestiges and the economic assets of the previous regime, 
here is where the Islamists in the military uh, come to the fore. Um, just uh, two days ago on April um, uh, 25th, um, just to give you an indication, the hardliners of the National Congress Party, the Islamists, or what we call in Sudan, Islamween, were released from prison. These included some of the most important uh, Islamist leaders, Ali Usman Taha, Ahmed Harun, uh, Omar Bashir himself was moved to a hospital, a military hospital. Here you see this kind of uh, opportunity for them to not only return to power, but in, uh, importantly, to um, stop what was uh, actually uh, going on with respect to the negotiations. And that is very successfully many workshops and deliberations itemizing uh, the assets of the previous regime and calling for their dismantling. So if you look at these different principles and how the different actors actually um, relate to them in terms of their own political ambitions and economic interests, you'll see that prior to this conflict, there was a, a dramatic shift, uh, the structural and political in terms of the balance of power between um, uh, the former allies and partners, uh, General Burhan and, uh, and Hemeti. Thank you, Khalif, for that, uh, that incredibly helpful overview that really raises an, a whole set of questions that we can kind of maybe talk through a little bit. And one of them is about Hamethi. And, you know, why would the civilian politicians be willing to work with him, given his responsibility for the massacre in 2019 and, and his own like long track record in Darfur and the like? It, it would seem there would be some fundamental incompatibilities between the forces of freedom and change and Hameti and his ambitions. And then on the flip side, what did Hameti expect to get out of democracy? Why why would he put himself under a civilian prime minister that he perhaps wouldn't be in a position to uh, control? Well, that's a really central question. Thank you for looking at the civil society side of this equation. In mm -hmm. this context, of the severity of the military conflict, uh, we have not had the opportunity uh, to actually discuss the civil society acts. No one is spared as uh, as a uh, as a protagonist in the in the. Uh, the failure of the of the framework agreement. Um, the problem with um, uh, the civil society, political parties, and the forces of freedom of change is that they were extremely reluctant to include uh, more stakeholders, um, and uh, in particular, very reluctant to actually uh, participate in negotiations with the resistance committees, which had been so key and important in overthrowing um, the, the 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 regime of Omar Bashir. Um, and I would argue that for those particular politicians and uh, and political elites, there was a, a fear of expanding political participation. Uh, their um, a central uh, problem and their, their, their central weakness that really undermined uh, uh, their role um, and, of course, contributed to this conflict was that rather than negotiating first with civil society actors, including the resistance committees, and then deliberating with the military, they did the complete opposite. They actually entered into negotiations with the with the both Burhan and Hemeti uh, under the auspices of the international community, and then because they realized that they did not have the the constituency they needed for you know to balance their position in these negotiations, begin to conduct workshops uh, belatedly uh, with uh, groups in civil society across the country, and of course that came too little, too late. Mm -hmm. From their perspective, and from the perspective of Sudanese, they also in the negotiations compromised their position in terms of accountability and the justice file the file that is so important to those uh, pro-democracy activists and uh, uh, was something that they uh, muted, let's put it ge uh, generously, in terms of the, uh, of the framework agreement. Uh, so they increasingly lost their legitimacy. And so the biggest problem was, with them was their own um, ambitions to retain power and to have a position uh, um, in the transitional government where they would get to appoint the, you know, the prime minister, uh, and the prime minister that they of their choosing would then appoint the cabinet. So it really is a story of political ambition. That does not mean that they are directly responsible for this level of violence, but it does mean that their own narrow political ambitions and interests within the forces of freedom uh, of change, a central council, and their refusal, because I actually discussed this with them and talked to them when I was in Sudan, all of the parties, including the resistance committees, uh, their really reluctance uh, for political reasons to really engage uh, with the resistance committees and take seriously the political charters that uh, were released um, in 
April of 2022 that offered an alternative of inclusion uh, to a larger body of civil society. Uh, so that becomes really important and we have to really uh, uh, hone in on the fatal mistakes, the political mistakes of this of the forces of freedom of change. Uh, on the side of Hemeti, that's an excellent question. Uh, his ambitions know no bounds, uh, emboldened by his vast wealth and previous uh, support by some of the greatest powers in the region. Um, Hemeti uh, likened himself uh, to uh, the president of the country. Um, and knowing full well, uh, for all the reasons I itemized, that the forces of freedom of change uh, lacked uh, the larger constituency that they required for their you know, strength and legitimacy, his calculations from my perspective in the majority of people was to actually manipulate the transition process, that he would retain his uh, military um, you know, power and autonomy, he would retain, most importantly, his wealth, because then he would, if he ingratiated himself to the forces of freedom of change in the new civilian prime minister, he would not, from his perspective, be vulnerable to investigation and the dismantling of his uh, assets, which, by the way, uh, the World Bank and the international finance institutions insisted upon um, for any kind of aid. So he wanted very much to uh, uh, control the transitional period, and I would argue to manipulate the so-called elections to come and make himself the president of Sudan. It is uh, that kind of ambition that he was calculating. Now, you mentioned um, a few minutes ago that uh, he started to lose financial support from the UAE, but at the same time, we've seen that he has a number of external connections and supporters could you talk a little bit more about the international dimension of this and what what was happening with the regional powers as they as we're approaching the uh you know the the crisis well that's very interesting because we have sometimes a very static understanding of the of the regional powers and their relationship to sudan uh, in this case it's an evolving dynamic um, and it's not as simple as saying, you know, the interests look like this and ha they looked, uh, they've looked like this for the last 20 years. Uh, the end of the war in Yemen and the, uh, the war in Ukraine uh, changed the calculations on the part of the Gulf countries in particular, uh, and also the United Arab Emirates. I had suspected that this was the case for some time. Um, despite the great assistance, financial uh, and um, political, that the UAE had um, given to um uh, to Hemeti, that all changed as the Saudi Arabians and the Americans impressed upon the United Arab Emirates that Sudan's stability was the most important for all concerned. And the best way to actually uh, stabilize the country was to engage in a managed transition. And it is uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia that pull in the United Arab Emirates and the United Kingdom into this quad uh, that oversaw those elections. Uh, by that time, you had a shift uh, previously, there were differences between Saudi Arabia and the UAE with respect to Sudan. But here you had a shared interest that evolved over time because of their changing strategies. Um, and so in this instance, Hemeti understood fully well that he had no choice. He could no longer have an independent relationship with the e UAE, and he had to participate in the Quad and actually support uh, this uh, transition. And this is why you'll see in his statements, surprisingly to some, this fervent kind of love of democracy that he somehow, um, you know, has discovered overnight. Um, and his uh, insistence that you know, he is saving the revolution of all things. That is not only his different calculations, but those, those uh, his calculations are dependent on the changing dynamics of Saudi Arabia and UAE. I have to say that for those countries, my uh, understanding um, is that they actually uh, did uh, try to have a different option, that is, let's say, support Burhan, but founding, finding Burhan um, unable uh, to consolidate his power was a real problem. Another is uh, they are not necessarily, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, they they're not necessarily unaware that there are elements, Islamist elements within the Sudanese armed forces, and so their idea was to really uh, bring these um, uh, groups together, civilians and the military, and manage a transition as the only way to stabilize the country and also, of course, uh, stabilize their own interest. Uh, and that is why um, you had the dynamic changing on the ground, so to speak. It's interesting. Now, you mentioned right at the outset that uh, one of the things that uh, conventional explanations can't really explain is the extreme levels of violence and the indiscriminate nature of the violence. Talk about that a little bit. And, you know, what do we need to know about why it's unfolding the way that it is in such horrifying brutality in Khartoum? 
Yes, um, well, that's important. I think that it's really important not to, you know, uh, quote my book, so to speak, but so many others have written. But it, the explanation has to be looked at in a historical fashion, and uh, it has to be looked at, and Sudanese do it uh, almost regularly, especially now, with respect to the pillars of the establishment of the deep state, uh, for lack of a better term, the Islamist authoritarian state of Ahmed Bashir. One of the legacies that maybe some of your listeners are unaware of is, um, the, as you know, in political science, the, the coup proofing that uh, went with the uh, the issues of, of the security sector and the concerted plan. A, a key pillar, of course, was the factionalization of militias and the generation of, of uh, different militias, including the popular defense forces, the security apparatus of the National Intelligence and Security Services. Um, by the way, the leader, the former leader of that was re released in from prison. And Nafi Ali Nafi, just to just to bring home the importance of this legacy, he's now out out from prison um, and roaming Khartoum and perhaps going further afield in the north. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, of course, uh, famously and importantly, uh, first the Janjaweed uh, that was established by Omar Bashir uh, to fight in Darfur, and in 2013 the formal establishment of the Rapid Support Forces. But the two other legacies, what we call the pillars of the empowerment policy of Tamkin of the Islamist regime, had to do number one with with a real concerted effort uh, to, as my book details uh, in detail, uh, the, the, the really command of the economy, um, in addition to, of course, um, their relationship with drawing in capital and investments from abroad. But the monopolization of the financial markets, uh, the monopolization and the use of the state to essentially uh, transfer uh, private and public assets into the, the kind of the hands and the, the power of the National Congress Party uh, and uh, those in the military uh, behind that. Uh, those two pillars have become um, really, really um, important. Um, and so if you look at those uh, kind of legacies, that becomes a really important aspect. The third and important legacy, of course, that you have to understand is the complete purging of the bureaucracy from non-Islamists, the real monopolization of the bureaucracy. Uh, uh, taken together, these three pillars explain the severity of the violence. Uh, from the uh, the elements of the National Congress Party in the armed forces that are some of whom have released from pr prison and a uh, number that are on the, the top brass on that committee, uh, their um, kind of uh, attitude is that if they are not to uh, have an outright military victory, uh, that uh, all of these spoils of war and authoritarianism of the deep state that they had generated over all of these years would be completely dismantled. Mm. Um, and this is why their statements from those elements of the armed forces are, we don't want international intervention whatsoever. What they're really saying is that we don't want an oversight over those who want to dismantle the deep state that we had built. So it's political ambition to get back in the bureaucracy and rule the country uh, because, uh, uh, you know, the Sudanese uh, have basically upended them uh, from the bureaucracy because of the revolution, which demanded uh, that the, there would be a reform in the armed forces and the, the lack of participation politically and the expulsion of any uh, members who worked with the, with the former regime. So for them, it's an existential battle based on deep, deep economic interest and wealth and political ambition that they see for them is nothing short of survival. Uh, and that is why they conspired and took the opportunity, I would argue. There was a period where it may not have worked out from their perspective, but they took the, this opportunity um, in, in the context of these differences I described between Hemeti and Burhan to push Burhan towards uh, that this kind of attack, an all-out you know, zero-sum game where they feel that they would, uh, believe it or not, uh, uh, you know, uh, engineer an outright military vi victory and as implausible as it sounds, actually re-institutionalize uh, themselves back uh, as they did previously under the rule of Umar Bashir. It is that uh, profound, unfortunately. Uh, from the perspective of Hemeti, uh, his uh, violent um, kind of, um, uh, uh, you know, a posture and the fight ongoing is very similar. Um, he understands that uh, given this kind of conflict, that uh, if he was to lose autonomy uh, for his rapid support forces in the context of integration, that he would be completely expelled literally from the country or arrested and lose all of these, uh, all, all his assets as well. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, then what about Hamedi on his end? Why the violence coming from the RSF and his people? 
Well, I think the best way to understand um, the kind of the severity of the violence and, and why he is fighting to the death, so to speak, is has to do with um, the fact that we have to remember that it's a mercenary organization. As such, it relies on two elements. One, of course, are funds to recruit and uh, uh, his followers, and he exploits, of course, uh, the, the poorest segments of Sunni societies in the rural areas. And another is external patronage. I think that this is, of course, uh, the, um, the way that mercenaries operate. Um, in his cases, I, I think I, I suggested that um, he found increasingly uh, I, himself isolated from external patronage. Um, and that is why he tried to rehabilitate himself as a Democrat in order to move towards the, closer to the West, as uh, implausible as um, that may seem. Um, having lost um, that kind of um, interest on the part of the United Arab Emirates, to put it um, mildly, he also went uh, to Ethiopia and Eritrea and tried to uh, solicit their support. Um, he did not find the kind of welcoming audience in those um, those countries. Ethiopia does not want to, at this stage, with what's going on domestically, to have any kind of um, you know, increase conflict with Egypt over the Nile waters. Um, and Eritrea is part of the Igad regional bloc, and um, it is uh, doesn't want to lose its own allies in the region in supporting Hemeti. Uh, and so he's uh, increasingly lost his external patronage. Um, at the same time, uh, the notion of his relationship to the Wagner group is somehow exaggerated. There is absolutely no question that uh, he does amass his wealth from gold smuggling, uh, but there are also a great deal of discussions um, with respect to um, actually, uh, you know, uh, convincing regional countries to, um, you know, stop that gold trade, uh, be particularly because of his relationship with Putin and with the, uh, the relationship of Wagner to the, to the conflict in Ukraine. Um, so in short, um, he's found himself short of allies abroad, uh, possibly being held accountable or at least uh, uh, his wealth being dismantled down the line. Um, and his only allies increasingly, believe it or not, were the civilian population. So um, as this, uh, this conflict emerged, he too uh, began to see his uh, options closing. So this is all fascinating. Uh, you know, I've been reading and listening to a number of Sudanese uh, intellectuals, activists on this, and they really don't like the framing of this as a civil war. They don't seem to think that's a useful way of thinking about this. What do you think about that concept and whether it applies? Uh, absolutely. It does not apply. It's not a civil war, and Sudanese are well aware of that. And Precisely, uh, the, the best way to answer that is to understand uh, the, or try to answer the question of why the majority of Sudanese that uh, um, are opposed to both Burhan and Hemeti. In other words, in other contexts, a civil war would um, actually must be defined as, you know, um, a group of uh, so groups in civil society who are actually in support of one or, or the other military faction. In this case, that's not the case. The majority of Sudanese, uh, frankly, continue to support the objectives of the revolution of December 2019. Um, but however, having said that, of course, uh, one of those uh, objectives was the unification of a standing army and the demobilization uh, of uh, militias in Sudan. Uh, that is part and parcel of the, the central objective of the revolution of 2019. That does not mean, however, that a reform of the military establishment uh, means uh, this kind of violence uh, or excusing um, um, the kind of uh, violence meted out by the top brass of the military. The idea here is to, yes, um, support in the long term uh, a national standing army, but to, to make sure it's a truly professional, autonomous, like what we call in political science, in institutionalized uh, actor in a Sudanese uh, um, um, in the Sudanese scene. And uh, as Sudanese often like to say, um, the most important, uh, one of the most important objectives is to put the military back into the barracks, uh, basically to position them into their legitimate uh, and historical uh, place uh, and to remove them outside of the political and economic sphere. Um, and on, on the one hand, and on the other hand, to demobilize irregular militias that were created uh, under the previous authoritarian regime of Ahmed Bashir. Great. Well, so looking ahead, you know, what do you expect? What should we be looking for as things continue to unfold? Well, the first and foremost is the humanitarian crisis and uh, alleviating this great suffering and the possible even uh, greater fragmentation of Sudan that would affect, of course, Sud all Sudanese, but the entire region. Um, and that uh, has to be addressed uh, uh, clearly with respect to uh, humanitarian assistance, uh, not only in Sudan, but across the borders for refugees uh, fleeing. Um, in, the in the medium and the long term, um, the scenario that is most likely uh, 
from the perspective of the two leaders, they want an outright victory. But what it looks like is that there is increasingly a military stalemate. And only um, in, um, you know, yesterday on April 26th, uh, the leaders of the IGAD regional bloc, uh, the Intergovernmental Authority on Drought and Development that encompasses the East African and Horn of African countries, in particular, the president of Kenya and uh, Djibouti and uh, South Sudan, have uh, initiated uh, um, you know, talks um, in Juba, um, calling for talks in Juba. Um, and uh, the uh, Burhan, General Burhan, has actually suggested that he's willing to do so. We, we have yet at this stage, at the time of this discussion, heard from uh, Hemeti. So I do believe that uh, there is, uh, um, you know, looking forward, uh, a political settlement uh, that is needed uh, to stop uh, the fighting and to begin uh, a discussion, serious discussions uh, about um, the transition to a full civilian democracy, this time on very different terms uh, than was conducted in the framework agreement. And here, uh, we are very much counting on the African neighbors uh, because they have long experience and they have vested interest in cooperation, of course, with the historic uh, Arab neighbors uh, uh, and uh, uh, around Sudan and the international community. So I am looking for a scenario here of a military stalemate, interventions on regional and then international actors. This time it has to be coherent, of course, um, but that is usually in the African context in particular, how these horrible, horrible uh, conflicts uh, end. Uh, and so this is in the medium and long term what I expect and what I'm hoping for. Well, great. Thank you. We've been speaking with Khaled Mustafa Medani at McGill University. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Professor Lynch. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for covering uh, this uh, particular issue. Mm -hmm.